Let us pray. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be always acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. In a hole in the ground there lived a hobbit. Not a nasty, dirty, wet hole filled with the ends of worms and an oozy smell, nor yet a dry, bare, sandy hole with nothing in it to, on, to sit down or to eat. It was a hobbit hole, and that means comfort. This is how Tolkien begins his book, The Hobbit. If you're familiar with the Lord of the Rings series, you know that hobbits as a species were a kind of creature that enjoyed their comfort, who desired to enjoy a quiet, peaceful life away from any disruption or adventure. And they were, of course, very small, and so nobody in their world expected anything very big from them. But it's precisely out of this particular hobbit hole, described at the beginning of the book, that Gandalf the wizard calls Bilbo Baggins, a small, timid creature, to an adventure. And then later, Gandalf returns to call Bilbo's nephew, Frodo, on another adventure, this time to save Middle-earth by destroying the ring that Bilbo had found on his first journey. One of the reasons, and I say one of the reasons because there are many reasons to love Lord of the Rings, but one of the reasons it's so lovable is precisely, I think, because the heroes of the story are so small and so unexpected. Now, last week, we talked about the conclusion of the story of Joseph in the book of Genesis. And our big takeaway was that God saved Joseph from his brothers and then from his imprisonment in order to save the people of Egypt, to save his brothers, and to preserve the line of Abraham, from which God brought us the Messiah. And so we talked about how Joseph anticipates the story of Jesus, but we also talked about how it's our story how God saved us from ourselves and from the devil so that we might be instruments that bring his salvation out into the world. And I want to drill down a little on this principle that we're saved in order to save this week by looking at the kind of saviors he uses and the kind of savior that he is. And what I think when we find, what I think we find when we contemplate this is that the kind of saviors God chooses to use tend to be those we least expect. And so today, I would argue, we see an unlikely savior in the story of Moses. Born to an enslaved and oppressed people, he was born under the sentence of death due to Pharaoh's tyrannical and monstrous policy of murdering the Hebrew boys to prevent them from growing too large a number. But as we saw, his mother saved him by constructing a basket and placing him afloat on the Nile. Now, the King James does a great job translating this story because that word for basket, which we tend to use when we talk about the story, in the Hebrew actually means ark. It's the same exact word that's used in Genesis 6 when Noah builds his ark that saves him from the flood. And so Moses' mother built him an ark that saves him from the waters. From there, the story of Moses is one that's filled with irony. This small child, this small baby who was born of the Hebrews, who wasn't supposed to live, becomes a member of the royal house of Egypt when Pharaoh's daughter finds him in the basket. There's not a ton of textual evidence for this, but I like to read her actions in saving Moses as a protest against her father's inhumane practices. But then we get this story where Moses stands up for one of his fellow Hebrews who was being savagely beaten by an Egyptian. 
And note that in the wake of that event, even after he stands up to defend the Hebrews, he lacks the self-confidence and leadership ability to garner any support. Even from these people he just defended, they reject him. And so Moses flees into the wilderness, knowing that Pharaoh was seeking to kill him. There are, of course, some other reasons in the biblical narrative that give us some suspicion of Moses' ability to lead, at least here in the beginning. For example, when he gets to the burning bush in Exodus chapter 3, his resistance to obeying God seems to be grounded in his lack of confidence in his own speech. God tells him to go back to Egypt to deliver the people, and he says, I can't. I'm a man slow of speech. The old Jewish interpretation tells us that the reason for this is that Moses had a speech impediment. We can't be sure, but the point remains, if you were drafting a team of leaders, Moses, at the early point in the story, is probably someone you would not want on your team. But by the end of our reading today, we begin to see a slight shift. We begin to see a slight empowerment of Moses by God in the way that he acts on behalf of the daughters of Reuel, who was a priest in the land of Midian. He saves them from some abusive shepherds. So Moses may not quite be the person who we would have thought at this point in the narrative is going to come back to Egypt and deliver the Israelites from their bondage. I want to fast forward to the New Testament. Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 through 5, St. Paul states, But when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his Son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law, that he might receive the adoption of sons. God's plan for salvation, which began all the way in the garden, culminates in the sending of himself. But if you read the New Testament, you know Jesus was not the military deliverer that many of the Jews who lived at his time expected him to be. They wanted to be free from Roman occupation, and so they were looking for a great military leader. And here comes a carpenter from the backwater town of Nazareth Nazareth, who gets himself executed by the Romans. Now, there have been a great many figures in human history, and we tend to be drawn towards those who have accumulated great power. People like Alexander the Great, Julius Caesar, the various Roman emperors, Hannibal Barca, Genghis Khan, Napoleon, so many others. But it's interesting, Napoleon, towards the end of his life, actually reflected on his legacy and the legacy of Christ and admitted that as amazing as some of the human accomplishments were by some of the great figures in history, Jesus is always greater Napoleon actually says, Alexander, Caesar, Charlemagne, and I myself have founded great empires. But upon what did these creations of our genius depend? Upon force. Jesus alone founded his empire on love, and to this very day, millions will die for him. Jesus didn't come in power with fanfare. God was born in a manger in an occupied land, to a working-class family. And even as he grew, he was from the outside seemingly unremarkable. I mean, look at who he spent his time with. Look at the disciples, a bunch of blue-collar workers who wouldn't have been able to pass the canonical exams to make it in the rabbinical schools of their day. These are the men that God empowered and used to become the first bishops of his church. These are the men that God used to preach the gospel and to grow the church. And of course, the story of Christ culminates in what looks like a total defeat, the crucifixion. But in God's economy, that defeat is actually a victory in which death is trampled by death. Jesus may not have been the savior that we would have created in our minds. Thank goodness for that. 
And because of this, many people still see Jesus as a stumbling block. I remember talking to someone recently who said, yeah, I like the Bible, but Jesus is a little wimpy. But Jesus is God. Jesus is our Savior, even if he's the Savior we wouldn't have expected. Their story is Christ's story, which is our story. If it's true that God uses unlikely saviors, that applies to us too. I heard a great saying this week. I was in class up at St. Mary's in Baltimore, and we were talking about the Old Testament. And one of the students very insightfully said, Israel wasn't chosen by God in the Old Testament because they were special. They were special because they were chosen by God. Not only is that true of Israel in the Old Testament, that's true of us here today because the church is Israel. And we weren't chosen because of some great merit on our part. God didn't look down from heaven and his crystal ball and say, wow, Father David, what a special guy. I better make sure he gets baptized. Rather, we are special because of baptism. If you grab a book of common prayer in the pew in front of you, quickly turn to page 577. This is the beginning of the catechism of the prayer book. Now, a catechism is a series of questions and answers that are designed to teach us the faith. Designed to teach us the faith. Many great catechisms in in various Christian traditions begin with grand questions. Father David is a former Presbyterian. Father David, how does the Westminster Catechism begin? What is God? What is is the purpose of man? man? Right, which is to worship God and enjoy him forever. I'm a better Presbyterian than Father David ever was. But he's not anymore. Praise be to God. Now, a lot of these catechisms begin with grand questions. What's the purpose of life? What's the purpose of man? What is God? How does our catechism begin? What is your name? It initially seems rather unremarkable, doesn't it? What is your name? But the reason that the catechism begins this way is far more profound, I think. It actually ties into the baptismal rite, which we just saw this morning. What was one of the first things that I said to Colby and Stephanie this morning? Name this child. Name this child. In the olden days, the name was actually given at the moment of baptism. We don't do that quite like that. But the point is that Francis' name is now intricately tied to the moment in time in which God placed an indelible mark on his soul that made him a Christian. We are not baptized because we have it all together. Quite the opposite. We're baptized when we realize there is no health in us, as the prayer book says. Baptism is a radical statement that we are insufficient of ourselves to save ourselves. And so we look around the church. We look at people who are here this morning. We look at the great, uh, at the great history of the church and the Christians who have made up that church. And we begin to see that the church is not so much the museum of saints, but a hospital for sinners. It's made up of redeemed sinners. We can think of the great saints like, like our patron here, St. Paul. St. Paul began as a persecutor of Christians. And then he became responsible for writing more, than, more of the New Testament than any other author. You can think about other great saints. St. Augustine, one of the best teachers of Western theology. He was a hedonist. 
who fought tooth and nail against the gospel in his own life until he couldn't resist anymore at his conversion. God uses the people we wouldn't expect, and we who are here who have been baptized are some of those people that God unexpectedly uses because we have been united in Christ. I mean, if you had asked friends of mine in high school to write what they think would happen to me, and an Anglican priest who preaches every Sunday is probably not on that list of things they would expect. What all this means is that God often works in the places that we don't expect him to. Our tendency is always to look at respectable people, famous people, successful people, and we think, oh, God's really blessed them. But when we do that, we might overlook a Joseph languishing in prison or a Moses fleeing out into the desert or a savior who was born in a humble manger. The challenge for us, especially in a world that so highly values the appearance of having it all together, is to look for God in those places where we might not expect him and in people that we might not expect him to use, even in people who maybe aren't there quite yet. Because as Christians who have been empowered by grace and who know what God has done for us, we can see the potential of what anyone else can be. Just like God loved us while we were yet sinners, we can, with God's grace, love others into being lovable. And we do that when we pray for them. I mean, really pray for them. You know, we all have those people who kind of rub us the wrong way. My mom calls them sandpaper people. You know, they're refining the the rough edges off of us. Those are the kind of people who should go at the top of our prayer lists. We should be praying for them more than we pray for anyone else. Because if we pray for them, those flaws, whether they're perceived or actual, begin to melt away in our mind in the purging fire of God's presence. They become more lovable to us. We see what they can be. We begin to really and actually will their good wanting what's best for them, desiring to see them flourish by God's grace to the fullest extent of their potential. And parallel to this, we begin to see them through the cross. Our Lord and Savior died for them. So how could we write them off? In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen.